Hello and welcome to Big Ideas Into Action. This is WRI's podcast, Relaunched. I'm Nicholas Walton. And in this episode, the big idea is giving local people around the world the power to deal with one of their greatest challenges, pollution. 90% of wastewater in developing nations runs untreated into rivers, lakes and seas. The cost is enormous. Pollution remains the largest environmental cause of disease, disability and premature death in the world today. So what can be done? Much depends on empowering communities and giving them access to information. Letting them know that they had a right to it, to demand it, to expect it. If they didn't get it, what they could do to enforce that right. The small village of Tenkurak on the island of Java, Indonesia. On the back streets, women are cooking while fishermen fix their boats and cut bamboo poles. The Chugang River is the lifeblood of the village, but the river is no longer as healthy as it once was. This is Rafudin. He says the village used to depend on the river, not just for fishing, but washing dishes, bathing, everything. But, he says, that's now changed. He says it began in 2003, when factories that were built upstream started to discharge their waste into the river. He says it's scary when the waste comes. The water becomes cloudy, foamy and smelly. They can't use it for washing. The waste gets into the village's ponds and into the paddy fields, where they grow rice. It destroys everything, says Rafudin. It's now much harder to catch any fish. Even after the discharge of waste, when the water looks like it's normal again, it's not. Rafudin says the waste settles to the bottom and looks just like mud. When people go into the water and step in it, they fall ill. But what can the villagers of Tenkurak do about this? It turns out there's quite a bit that they can do, but only if they have the information. Roshadi Jamaluddin is another who says it's becoming harder to catch fish and prawns thanks to the pollution. He says information is the key to solving the problems. Even knowing when the factory was discharging wastewater would help. Almost 6,000 kilometers to the north, the community in the remote Mongolian town of Erdenetsagan faces similar challenges. This is Batarsuk, co-founder of Erdenetsagan Without Mining. He says that one sunny day a mining company set up near the boreholes they use for drinking water for themselves and their animals. The company started polluting it with waste and made roads big enough to cope with its enormous 50-ton machines. Naran Tungalag, another activist, says the local people became extremely frustrated. But they found there was something they could do. They gathered support and information and began to film illegal activities. This is the Tool River near Zama, a gold mining town in central Mongolia. Environmental activist Enk Tavon says the people of Zama were concerned about the pollution and started finding out what the law said. They discovered that mining is prohibited within 50 metres of water sources. But, he said, a mining company was operating right next to the Tool River. 
Like the people of Erdenet Sagan, the community of Zamar used the information to fight for their rights, petitioning the government to strengthen laws, enforce the laws that already existed, and listen to the concerns of local people. In essence, that's what WRI's strike project is all about. Many millions of people in low- and middle-income countries are affected by problems such as pollution in the air, the soil and the water, but don't know what they can do about it. STRIPE stands for Strengthening the Right to Information for People and the Environment. And the project empowers communities to improve their environmental health through the right to access information. One of the other locations STRIPE is being used is Jamaica. So what does the work there involve? I spoke to Danielle Andrade, WRI's STRIPE partner on the ground. It's not easy to get information on the mining and quarrying sector in Jamaica. You have to know where to go, who to ask, you know, what to look for, what to ask for, the name of the document. It, it was something that definitely the average community member had no way of knowing how to get the information. So we decided that we would work with the World Resources Institute. We heard about this um, assessment that they had to help people, communities, learn about how to get information about industries that impact them. And we decided that we would work with the World Resources Institute to try and do that in these two communities that had been affected and see how well that would work and if we could actually help them get the information that they needed. What was the impact on the communities of these problems they were facing? A range of issues. So for one of the communities called Hayes in Clarendon, which is a community of about 12,000 or so people, there was a bauxite mining operation located in the midst of the community. And when I say in the midst of community, you had schools around and houses around the bauxite processing plant um, in very close proximity to it. And they repeatedly would complain about concerns with dust. Respiratory illnesses were high in the community. We also did a health survey. It was something that had been almost like an accepted risk of living in close proximity to that industry. And they would even get periodic payouts from the mining industry for dust relief. From their point of view, the concerns were mainly about respiratory illnesses. There were people also who complained about skin sensitivities, rashes, things like that. You were able to identify exactly what their rights were. So it wasn't just a question of getting occasional payouts from the industry. It was a question of understanding and providing them with the information and the the levers to pull to be able to improve the overall situation. The mining industry is something that had been so integrated within the community that there were community members that even worked with the mining industry whose livelihoods were tied to the industry. And and so it was very difficult for those people to come out and speak out about issues. And the others who were there were not empowered because they didn't have the information. They didn't know how to get the information. And so there were continuing community engagements between the mining companies and and the communities, but the communities just did not have the information to really dialogue with the companies, to dialogue with the regulators and let them know this is a real problem, this is what we know. For example, there was a future plan to expand the alumina processing plant. They weren't able to articulate what exactly were their concerns and to understand what the impacts 
of that processing were. So giving them that sort of information, but more so letting them know that they had a right to it, to demand it, to expect it. If they didn't get it, what they could do to enforce that right, I think was something that left a lasting impression on the communities. So to this day, I believe those communities have a better, I don't know if you want to say bargaining power, but are better armed to deal with the government um, agencies and with the mining industry. You were able to identify exactly what their rights were. So it wasn't just a question of getting occasional payouts from the industry. It was a question of understanding and providing them with the information and the, uh, and the, the levers to pull to be able to improve the overall situation. Right. So some of the also things that we did is, and with the communities is that they did some advocacy around the findings of their research and were able to try and, and call for for better conditions or for better rights. So, for example, we found that a lot of the information that existed for communities was not kept in the communities itself or located in the bauxite mining processing plants, but they were located in the capital of Jamaica, which is Kingston, which was some way, some distance from communities. We also found that the costs for getting information back in the day, it would have been about the equivalent of 40 US per hour to search registers to get information. They found that information that had to be proactively released about the sources of pollution, that that information was outdated. It was two to three years old. They found that half of the information that the community wanted, not, not only was it very technical in nature and very difficult for them to understand, but half of the information was only available in electronic formats. And these were um, communities that, I wouldn't say necessarily rural, but the communities where not everybody had in- access to internet. It was you know, not something that you would say that this was a very um, connected community. So all of these issues and findings came out of the stripe assessment. And there were, there were a lot more. And what they were able to do is to use that information to advocate. First, they released that information. They did videos. We also did a publication on best practices, and we use that to advocate with the government and with the communities to try and get better conditions. Danielle Andrade, a board member of the Jamaican Environment Trust and a partner of WRI's Stripe Project. You're listening to Big Ideas Into Action, WRI's relaunched podcast this week looking at how we can give people the power to tackle local pollution in their communities. So that's what the challenge looks like on the ground in Indonesia, Mongolia and Jamaica, and that's what's being done about it. But what's the big picture? Here's Liz Moses, who works on environmental rights and justice at the World Resources Institute. The Stripe Project really came about as a way of really translating environmental rights into action. So the right to live in a clean, healthy, and safe environment is an actual human right recognized by the United Nations. And there's two pieces to it. There is sort of the right to a clean environment 
access to safe water and sanitation, food and non-toxic environment. But then there's also something called procedural rights, and that's the right to access information, to publicly participate in decisions, and to have access to justice mechanisms. The Strike Project really wanted to translate those procedural rights to information and accountability into tools that local people could use to really address their concerns around pollution. So those examples in Mongolia and in Indonesia, where there's a factory or a business or or some kind of company or a mining site that's polluting a water course that then runs through communities, that kind of thing is a fairly typical setup for for the type of situation that you go into as Stripe and, and deal with. Yeah, that's correct. We have been working in six different countries, working with local communities and civil society partners. And in each case, the pollution challenge is different. So in Thailand, we were working with local communities that were concerned about the pollution coming out of the Mataput industrial estate. In Tunisia, it was working with community members concerned about the phosphate mining and processing that were going on. And in Morocco, it was working with people in Tangier about one of the big landfills that was leaching um, both water toxics into their water table as well as air pollution and just contaminating the land. But in each case, there were opportunities to really support the local community's ability to use their right to access information, to identify and participate in the regulatory forms where they could express their concerns, and really develop advocacy campaigns that allowed them to hold both their government officials and the companies that were doing the polluting um, accountable for their actions. And this isn't just a case of trying to stop progress. I mean, development, economic development is an important thing. It's about helping people be able to manage their own relationship with some of the things that are going on that might actually overstep what what are rules and regulations. That's absolutely correct. So, you know, I think there's been this sort of historical um, assumption that pollution is one of those sort of prices you have to pay for economic development. And really, I don't think that is true ever, but it's certainly not true anymore. There are certainly technical and policy solutions that allow you to grow your economy, develop your country without causing the pollution and the significant cultural health and environmental impacts that's associated with it. But unfortunately, pollution remains the largest environmental cause of disease, disability, and premature death in the world today. Over 9 million deaths have been associated with pollution, and that is more than the number of people that have died from AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. It's drained the world's economy of over $4 trillion. And the key sort of issue is really that most of this pollution, most of this death is occurring in the low and middle income countries that really need the development. So we really need to figure out a way that we can be growing these economies without putting poor and marginalized communities in the wake of pollution and all of the consequences that they have to suffer. 
Uh, what kind of problems do you encounter in these communities? I mean, we've seen in Indonesia, in the example that we had earlier, that it affects the economic life of a village. You know, the fishermen, suddenly they can't be as economically productive as they were before. It means that they can't use the water for communal things like being able to wash. Uh, and you're saying that there's also health problems and so on? Yeah, in many of the communities, people also experience health impacts, whether that was rashes and other sort of impacts from contaminated water, asthma or other respiratory issues from the air pollution. And they also aren't really clear on the origins of those health impacts. And so it's very difficult for them to get the basic information they need about why they're not feeling healthy and what they can do about it. The other kind of impact that I don't think gets enough attention is the really the impact to sort of the cultural um, and social livelihood of the people that are living in these areas. One of the examples in Mongolia is really that some of the mining is happening in some historic and really culturally important areas. So they're not just losing land that they need to raise their livestock or live their lives, but really areas that connect them to their culture and their history. The whole idea with this, as with so many other things that WRI gets involved in, is that you, you find an answer to a particular challenge and then you, you understand how it can be applied to different situations around the world. And at the minute, uh, Stripe has been working on a, a toolkit of responses to different situations. Can you fill us in with that, please? So one of the key sort of messages of the stripe project is that when local communities are given the tools to really be able to identify the information they need communicate and express their concerns to the right people and really advocate for their concerns they're able to really make great impact and that they cannot just respond but can really lead in ensuring that their communities their families, their livelihoods are protected. So environmental rights like access to information and public participation aren't just rights that are recognized by governments and multilateral institutions. They're strategic tools that can really help people get what they need from their governments. So one of the things that we've done in Stripe is really sort of synthesize the methodology, the sort of steps that local communities can take to really make this happen and achieve the results that they're hoping to achieve. And we're calling that a toolkit in that it sort of outlines the eight steps that local communities should take that will allow them to use these environmental rights to address the pollution in their local communities. The first is really to make sure that there's a clear sense on what the problem is and that they can connect that problem and communicate that problem in a very strategic and specific way so that they're not just talking about the fact that their water is no longer clean, but they're able to really identify what they think the cause is and what the impacts that that water, dirty water has caused them. The second sort of step is really to identify the information that they need. It's not helpful to just say that they have dirty water. They really need to know what are the industries that are causing or releasing toxic chemicals into the water? What are those industries' responsibilities in terms of the rules and regulations that govern how they operate? They need to really understand exactly what's happening in their local community and not just get sort of general statistics about what is going on in their country. 
once they have that information, then they really need to identify where are the participation forms where they can go and express their concerns. Most industrial development requires companies to do what's called environmental impact assessments. And these are basically sort of studies that really look at what is the development that's going to happen and what is the environmental impact and social impact that that development may or may not create. There's very important participation requirements that go on as part of that process where local communities are allowed to express their concerns and express their opinions. But unfortunately, many of those environmental impact assessment procedures are not followed. In fact, the gap between what is on the laws and what is required and how those laws are actually being implemented is a huge gap that's a really big systemic problem in many, many countries. Finally, once they've been able to identify the right participation forums, the Stripe Toolkit really supports their ability to advocate for their concerns, identify the right people that they should be talking to, the messages that they need to be communicating, and the coalitions and other people that they should be talking about so that their concerns are adequately recognized and addressed. Finally, Liz, the various projects that you've worked on, what kind of success story uh, has been particularly memorable for you? Oh, there's been a lot of incredible successes that we've been able to achieve. Everything from changing policies and regulations in Indonesia that really expanded the environmental information that's available to local communities so that they have more information about what's happening. In Mongolia, we really have been able to help strengthen the national networking so that mining communities spread out across the country are able to work more closely together and really advocate some of the larger policy changes that are needed. In Tunisia, we really have been able to train local community members to effectively engage with their governments around their concerns so that they're able to really leverage the sort of mechanisms that exist in those countries. And in Morocco, we're really helping them build a whole network of civil society organizations that are going to use the STRIPE methodology to really address their issues around pollution in a variety of uh, contexts and a variety of pollution issues all across that country. Liz Moses. Finally, it's the time in the podcast when we hear a few short words from one of our WRI colleagues working on the issue we've just been discussing. What motivates them? What has their experience been? This week, we've got the woman who founded the Stripe Project. Hi, I'm Carol Excel. I'm the director of the Environmental Democracy Practice at the World Resources Institute. I really created the project because as an environmental lawyer myself, I recognize the power of the right information for local communities to be able to use. At the start of the project, I recognize that the work was very important work, but I think I did not recognize the level of danger it can put a community member who speaks up and voices their opinions about polluting industries, air or water. It really came through to us after we finished our project in Thailand, where one of the activists, Sutia Tachi, who had been working on this big Maktaput estate trying to get accountability, was murdered. And it really raised this issue of how dangerous it is to use these rights and putting in place safeguards and protections for environmental defenders as part of any project, I think, 
is a fundamental lesson that we have to learn. It's just, you cannot work without ensuring that those who are at the front lines of an environmental movement, assuring accountability, have protection and you can prevent harm against them. And that was Carol Excel, creator of The Stripe Project, ending this episode of WRI's relaunched Big Ideas Into Action podcast with me, Nicholas Walton. If you go to the podcast part of WRI's website, it's on the drop-down blog menu, you'll find lots more information about the project, including links to useful information. You can also find other episodes of Big Ideas Into Action, tackling some of the biggest issues in the world in which we live. You can, of course, also subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or whichever podcast app you want. That's all for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.